Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast and this is the last of the teenage years as it's number 19. I'm Jim Cornell from LeBiotech and tomorrow I'll be on a plane to BioEurope. Well, kind of. I was supposed to be on two planes, not at the same time obviously, but the second one was cancelled and the changed flight didn't work at all. So now I'm taking a plane to Amsterdam followed by a train from Amsterdam to Leipzig. With lots of changes and via pretty much every town and village in the Netherlands and Germany, I think. So all told, it looks like I'll be on the road for about 16 hours. That's enough time for me to drive to the airport and get a plane to Mumbai. And that would be nice, other than the fact that Bio-Europe isn't in Mumbai. But it does show the strangeness of travel sometimes. To emphasise that, I was invited to an event in London last week, and to get there on a train is the same length of time I could get to Dubai by plane, assuming no flight delays, that is. On the bright side, the weather forecast in eastern Germany looks decent, even warm compared to here. My schedule at BioEurope is already looking quite crazy. I start at 8am on the Monday and I already have 22 interviews and meetings booked in the first two days alone. It's a pity that I don't know sign language as there's a chance my voice will be shot after the first five. I also hope I have enough memory to do all of the interviews and by that I mean recording memory, not my brain. But that definitely could use an upgrade. All right, let me tell you who our guests are on the podcast. We have conversations with Manuel Hogelich, CEO of Tau Systems, Mark Falkt, CEO of Immutep, and Laurie Isis, CEO of Bone Health Technologies. So it's another CEO week. And we also have our weekly chat with global commercial real estate services company JLL. And this week it's Travis McReady again. And that means if you listen to the show every week, and I'm clearly totally predictable, that it's time for lunch. No, it's time for this week's news that you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. There was more positive news for Verona's COPD treatment, clinical microbiomics acquired MSomics, and there were positive results from Milestone Pharmaceuticals Phase 3 PSVT trial. We had a special newsletter on CRISPR, which, if I do say so myself, was pretty good, with seven new articles on the site and some of them exclusives. Ophthalmology biopharma company Oculus has combined with EBAC. We had a story on UK grants that can give biotech startups a jumpstart, and a clinical trial for the treatment of advanced solid tumours was approved. An obesity drug has the potential to be the most powerful in the world, according to the study principle. Gene activity could help identify the risk of kidney cancer spreading. And Emergex has developed a vaccine for smallpox and monkeypox. EditForce has created U to C RNA editing technology. We had an article on the five hottest biotechs in Australia, and Nucleome Therapeutics raised £37.5 million to deliver precision medicines. Domain Therapeutics is starting a clinical trial for its solid tumour treatment. A report says that 20% of global cancer deaths could be avoided, and we had a report on Health Tech Innovation Days. 
A multi-year agreement was signed to boost women's reproductive health. A license from Helmholtz Munich will enable progression of a brain cancer treatment. And Vector Builder has raised funds for gene delivery research and development. Enhanced 3D Genomics raised £10 million to advance its technology platform. C4XD and HitGen are set to collaborate on an inflammation hit identification project. And a study for a tablet to treat brain cancer is now open for recruitment. AbbVie has acquired LifeArc portfolio company DJS Antibodies, Sunshine Biopharma acquired Nora Pharma, and you can read all of these and a whole lot more at labiotech.eu. So let's get down to the main part of the podcast, which is the interviews. And first up this week is Tau Systems, which raised $15 million recently in seed investment to bring particle accelerators to a multitude of users by harnessing the latest laser technology to make electrons surf on three-dimensional plasma waves and accelerate them to ultra-high energies. To tell us what all that means is the CEO of Tau Systems, Manuel Hogelich. First question, if you could tell me a little bit about the company. Sure, yeah. So Tau Systems, uh, we founded about uh, almost exactly a year ago. And I was uh, spun out of UT Austin. Uh, I'm a professor at UT Austin and uh, been working there for the last 10 years on laser-driven particle acceleration. And um, we've been coming to a point where we thought, okay, the results that both we had got in our labs and uh, Colleagues worldwide got in there as warrants it that we can now get to a point where we can take these things out of the lab and out of the experimental stage and uh, make a real product out of it. So we founded Tower Systems uh, about a year ago, worked at building up the company sort of in stealth mode and uh, hired a team and uh, put it all together. And uh, a few weeks ago, we sort of went public with that and announced. And uh, yeah, so now we're really... Uh, trying to kick it into a high gear and um, putting our first large facility together, putting a few strategic collaborations together, and of course, hiring uh, even more people. And our uh, power systems right now, we're about 15 people and um, going going strongly on 20, hopefully by the end of the year, and uh, a strong growth trajectory here. Uh, the premise of Tau Systems, what we really are doing is we're taking uh, particle accelerators, which conventionally are very large campus-sized installations, synchrotrons and large linear accelerators that are kilometers in size, and we are shrinking those down to room size, basically. They're still meters, even many meters in size, the size of a large room, maybe a factory hall, but they are like, uh, we're making them to something where it's like a large machine that you would found, find in a factory and not something where it needs its own research campus, basically. Thereby, uh, the goal is to really democratize access to them. Access is, is severely limited, well, by the simple fact that you typically have very, very few of these machines, right? In the UK, for example, well, there is the diamond light source. Well, that's it. That's the only synchrotron in the UK for X-ray light of that type. And then there's ISIS, which is the spallation source. And that's the only sort of neutron spallation source in the UK because they are very large machines costing billions of pounds. Um, right now, there is in the UK science community uh, efforts underway to 
propose the building of a free electron laser, an X-ray free electron laser, which is sort of the peak of X-ray light sources right now. Um, and there is one at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Complex in the United States. There is the European XFEL in Hamburg. There is a smaller version in Switzerland, one in Korea and one in Japan. That's it, five in the world, that's it. The UK would like to build one, um, but again, that is a multi-billion pound proposition. They may or may not decide to do that. Even if they decide to do that, that's probably going to be a decade or more uh, before that happens. And our company is working on developing a compact version of that machine that would be able to fit, as I say, in a large room instead of um, billions of pounds, it would cost a few 10 millions of pounds. It may not have all the capability of a full-blown accelerator, but it would have a good chunk of it. And for a lot of things, you don't need all the capability all the time, right? You don't run your car at the red line all the time, right? Even a race car doesn't run at the red line all the time. And if you can have many of those, because as I said they are a lot smaller and a lot cheaper, you can actually get a lot of research done and you can actually develop a research community for these machines. And not just a research community, you can develop an industrial user base for these machines that can then, if you go ahead and build a large machine like that, that can then actually use a large machine like that even better because you now have a broad user base that knows what to do with it. It's a lot like computers, actually. When computers first came up, the very first computers out of the Manhattan Project all the way back, they were building-sized machines. And then over time, they shrunk down, and now each of, each one of us has one on our desk and even in our pockets. But we still have building-sized computers, and we use them for the most complicated tasks, weather predictions, earthquake, and all the most complicated problems in science that we tackle every day. So we still have building-sized computers. We actually have more building-sized computers than we ever had, and they are more powerful than they ever were. And still, each of us has usually multiple computers in our home. And we see the same, we think the same will happen with these sort of compact accelerators and light sources. The more we have of them, the more uses will become apparent for them in all kinds of areas of science. They will enable R&D and biology and, and pharma and material science and really all kinds of different areas in life science and, and, and energy research. And uh, every time, basically, because especially when it comes to the X-ray sources, they are the next evolution of microscopes, basically. Every time when you want to look at something on a molecular level, that's when they are basically the most powerful tools that we have. They are like a very, very powerful microscope coupled to an ultra slow motion camera. So you can make a movie of two molecules bonding to each other, for example, of electrons jumping from one molecule to the other, things like that. So I guess that would be the relevance to medicine and biotech then, that, that ability to do that? Exactly, exactly. There are, when you talk about these X-ray free electron lasers, or this is basically the only way today that we know how to build an X-ray laser. And just like normal lasers basically have revolutionized the things we can do with light, X-ray lasers are revolutionizing the, the things we can do with X-rays because they're just so much more brilliant than our normal X-ray sources. And so you can do imaging 
that you simply cannot do with a normal X-ray source because the X-ray pulses from these machines are so much more brilliant than what we get from a normal X-ray source and much, much, much shorter in duration. One of the things, for example, you can do imaging of proteins that you can't really do any other way because to really see them, to really image certain structures, you need a lot of light, you need a lot of X-ray light. And if you use a conventional source that has a long pulse, your X-ray pulse is actually now powerful enough to destroy the protein you want to look at. That's no good. If you now take one of these very, very short X-ray pulses, the X-ray pulse is even more powerful because you pack all these X-rays in a shorter time, which increases the power. So it will still destroy the protein, but now the pulse is so short that you actually get the image before the protein flies apart. So it's sort of image before destroying. And that's a really neat trick. So you really can now image things and get the structure before they get destroyed, which you cannot do with the uh, older, longer pulse X-ray sources. And that's just one example. Another example is you can, at the same time that you image, you, could al you can also do uh, spectroscopy. Because you have enough photons that you can do spectroscopy on certain elements. So not only get the structure, you also know what elements are in the proteins, for example. There is other techniques that people are starting to develop. I mean, right now, when you want to image a protein, like all the protein structures that have been imaged on synchrotrons have been imaged using crystallography, right? So what you do is you, you crystallize your protein. So now it's in, a, it's in a crystal and it's static. First of all, you can't do this to all proteins. A lot of proteins just change their structure when you do that. You can't crystallize all of them. You can't to zeroth order, you can crystallize smaller proteins, but the larger, the more complex they get, the harder it is to crystallize them and preserve the structure you want to look at because it's no good if while crystallizing they change structure because then again, you, you get an image, but it's not the image you actually want, right? So that doesn't help you. So we've really only imaged a small fraction of the proteins that are around. And that small fraction, by the way, is what you followed, of course, the recent developments with DeepMind alpha, AlphaFold algorithm that's been trained on the 200,000 or so structures that we have imaged with synchrotrons. And from there, it extrapolates all the 200 million others, but it's really only trained on the ones we can image. So to what extent can it really predict something that it has no data on? That's a very open question. It does make those predictions, and this is going to be highly interesting, but as a, as a researcher that is now working with these predictions, you will want to confirm those. You will want to measure these more complicated structures that AlphaFold is predicting, but now you need a method to actually measure them, right? And there is now new technologies. There's cryo-EM, cryo-electron microscopy that can measure uh, more complicated structures, and biologists, of course, also improve and get better and better and can crystallize more and more and more complicated structures, but still it's not pull battle. And so on an X-ray free electron laser, in principle, there is techniques where you can either use tiny, tiny, tiny microcrystals and nanocrystals and image proteins in solution and just do lots and lots of them, have very high throughput. And there's even techniques of single particle imaging where you, where you can potentially image proteins without crystallizing them that will allow you a chance to image very, very complex proteins. And even beyond that, if you can get to a point where, and this is what a lot of the groups at the five FELs that are around are working on, if you can get to a point where you can image something without crystallizing it, 
uh, you can now start to look for dynamics, right? Because by definition, if it's crystallized, you lose all the dynamics because, well, it's in a crystal. And so what you can really never see when you crystallize your protein is where are the coupling sites when a protein would bond to another protein or just another molecule, right? And if you're doing drug development, and you may want to know if you, especially if you want to design something rationally from the ground up, where does your protein bond to some other molecule? How does it dock to a cell? How does it go through a cell wall? And these bonding sites in an individual protein are often hidden. You can't see them until and unless it docks to something and that you can image again when you crystallize it. So, and AlphaFold, for example, can predict that because it does have no data, zero data on that. This is something that really cannot be predicted currently. Again, of course, smart people, large teams working on it, but you need some data to base it on. And this is data that the free electron laser, hopefully in the future, will be able to get you. And this is what a lot of groups there are, are developing. That's the big promise there, that you can then image these things and, and you can really get to a state where you can do rational therapeutics design on a molecular level from the ground up, basically. And that would be fantastically exciting, of course. Who will you be aiming these techniques at in terms of the companies that will be using it? Uh, Moderna's and Pfizer's, BioNTech's are leading the way right now. I mean, they've been very successful uh, with a new technique they've developed, their mRNA techniques for the vaccines they are currently pushing out. And they've spent the last decade basically developing this. And um, with COVID, I mean, they've, I mean, in a way, it was a, well, I hesitate to say it was a lucky accident, but it was an accident that been able to sort of push this out and they've been showing a fantastic success basically right the COVID vaccine has been the fastest developed vaccine in history that has undergone the largest sample testing basically and it's been fantastically successful and even so that virus keeps mutating and we have to update it regularly and it's still not finished and it doesn't look it will be anytime soon and so they're going to be busy they've developed that technique and for the next few years, maybe a decade or so, they're going to be able to capitalize on that, right? And they're going to be able to roll out new things based on that same technology. But what then after that, right? You need to now lay the groundwork for the next thing. And getting into this rational design process is certainly something that would be attractive. I mean, to a large player like that, those would certainly be companies, these big companies would certainly be companies that could go for a full production line there. For us as a company, the other thing, though, we want to do, and we want to partner with, with academic partners here, we're talking to various universities in the U.S., East Coast, West Coast, and also uh, Central, of standing out machines like that in sort of service centers, uh, building a, a light source service centers, where then uh, we can operate this ideally on the campus, but it doesn't have to be, it could also be other, but basically you can imagine sort of a center like this, or a large metropolitan area that has, say, a high density of biopharma or, for that matter, semiconductor or material science companies, right? Companies that would be interested in that type of technology and using it. And then they may not be big enough by themselves to want or be able to utilize a full machine, but they may be interested in having time on the machine. And so we would be able to operate a service center and offer time and basically full service on the machine like this is done today 
with Prio EM, for example, as a service where you can basically go, you hand in your sample, we will do the measurements and hand back the data. Right now, we are discussing that type of operating model with various U.S. institutions. And the next step, and we're sort of starting first talks there, is to extend that over to Europe and the U.K. In terms of the way that it will work, will it be something like they would come and utilize the facility for, I don't know, they book it for a week and they get to use it for a week? Or would it be more that they would book your time and you would do all the work on their behalf? I think it could be both, depending on the user and also depending on sort of the stage. In the first stage, uh, one probably would work with users that have a little more experience and one would tend more towards the former and, and people would come for a little longer time and we work together, especially since, as I said, right now, these imaging techniques still get developed at the big accelerator facilities. And so it would take some time to really develop the full chain from the machine all the way down to the detector, the data analysis and all that. Once that's done, the goal would be to go into sort of a full production mode where people really just have to basically send the sample. We do the work and send back the data, but that will be a few years down the road. What's the approximate timing for getting this up and running? Well, we're starting to put the first prototype together, which will be in the UV, and we're hoping to have that running in about three years. The goal for the first X-ray prototype is more on the sort of five-year scale. And by then, in parallel, we're working with people at the larger accelerators on the imaging system. And so hopefully by the end of the decade, we would hope to have the full version bioimaging system running. Next, Bone Health Technologies is a San Francisco-based company that applies science and medical expertise to create better health outcomes for women and men at risk of developing osteoporosis and the associated bone fractures. The company has created OsteoBoost, the first vibration belt specifically designed to treat osteopenia and prevent osteoporosis. And to tell us more is Bone Health Technologies' CEO, Laura Yeezys. All right. Well, I guess the first and most obvious question is if you can tell me something about the company. Sure. Bone Health Technologies is a company that was founded to treat diseases of the bone. In particular, we're focused on osteoporosis and osteopenia, low bone density. And really, really excited about what we're doing because you know, these are some of the most common problems that we have. It's one of the biggest public health issues that we face and, you know, really lack of treatments and options available. And what kind of things are you working on currently? So our main focus is on using vibration-based treatments. So we have a wearable vibration belt that we've uh, just finished our pivotal trial and we're working on analyzing the data and getting ready to submit that to the FDA. How does that work and what is it to treat? So it's to treat osteopenia in postmenopausal women. And in the future, we hope that we'll be able to also prove that it works for men, for people with osteoporosis, people taking osteoporosis medications. It's a belt and it has a vibration pack that is applied to the lumbar spine. So you wear this belt, the pack is sort of at the very bottom of the back, right above the tailbone. And it applies a very specific type of vibration 
And that frequency and amplitude of vibration has been shown to stimulate bone turnover and bone density improvements. So there's a body of research on whole body vibration, standing on whole body vibration platforms, and that has been shown to improve bone density. But people have a hard time complying with that treatment. The platforms are expensive. You have to sit there essentially doing nothing. And here you can be doing housework, walking the dog, you know, standing in your kitchen. So it's very easy to incorporate this treatment into just everyday life. It is improving bone density in the lumbar spine and in the hips. So those are two of the areas that are most um, significantly affected by osteoporosis in terms of fracture risk. But in the future, we're hoping to have products that you could wear in other parts of the body. So for instance, it's common to have um, osteoporotic fractures of the wrist and of the thoracic spine. But for now, we're targeting the lumbar spine, L1 to L4, and the total hip, top of the femur. So when you hear people breaking their hips, we're hoping that our treatment will lower the risk of that. Excellent. I know my uh, elderly mother, that happened to her. She fell in the kitchen and broke her hip. And it, it seems such an innocuous fall. You know, it's not something that's a big force. It's just a fall. And you uh, you don't realize that it's quite as serious as it is. And I guess the numbers are quite high for that kind of fracture as well. Well, first of all, the seriousness is really something, you know, about 25% of people who break their hip, they don't die from the hip fracture, but they don't survive a year because it just oftentimes precipitates a big decline. And then half of people who break their hip lose their independence. So it can be a devastating injury. Now, there are patients who recover and do well, but it is something to be avoided at all costs, if possible. And if you you look at the anatomy of the body, you see that there's this sort of narrow part of the hip, it's called the femoral neck, that kind of angles in towards the pelvis. And that area is just narrow. And if you lose too much bone density there, it doesn't take much for it to break. It's very serious. Half of all women will have a fracture from low bone density in their lifetime. And one in four men, which is not a small number. That's what gets me so excited about what we're doing is, you know, there are effective medications and and treatments to use, and, and that's great. But there's there's currently nothing that you can do early on in the course of this condition. So if you think about cardiovascular disease, man in your 40s or 30s, they'll check your cholesterol. And if your cholesterol, blood pressure are high, you'll treat it. You'll take a relatively safe medication. And hopefully, you, you know, in your 40s, you can take a medicine that's going to prevent the heart attack in your 60s or 70s from this plaque accumulating it's a long-term thing to try to head off this condition. Well, with osteoporosis, let's say you find out, and for many women, they'll have osteopenia in the late fifties. And if you find out, you know, in the late fifties that you have osteopenia, the doctor will say, well, try to exercise and get enough calcium and vitamin D, which maybe you're already doing. So not much else you can do there. And if you develop osteoporosis, then we'll give you a medicine. So there's nothing right now to use early on and kind of head this off. What kind of stage would you be using your treatment? Is it sort of in the 40s or 50s or? I think for 
most patients, it'll be the 50s and 60s. There, there are some exceptions where it's earlier. Our pivotal trial, which I mentioned before, was for postmenopausal women. And I think the average age in our trial was about 60. So we had some in their 50s, some in their 60s. We had one or two that were older. But by then, most women tend to have osteoporosis. And so they didn't qualify for the trial because the trial was osteopenia. You know, the, there are medications for osteoporosis. And we would like to do trials that are adjunctive, so combine our device with those medications. And in particular, you know, there's a lot of understanding and knowledge that the anabolic medications uh, benefit from the patients exercising. So you need to have both the anabolic hormone and stimulation of the bones for them to improve their bone density. And so that's something that we're looking at pursuing. And you're working with the UCSF. Is that a study that's already underway? Yeah, they started this summer and it's going very well. They are just an awesome site. Dr. Schobeck, who is the you know principal investigator, I mean, she's written the guidelines for osteoporosis for the Endocrinology Society, and they have some of the top epidemiologists. So we're really excited to be working with them. And one of the other goals of this trial specifically is to recruit non-Caucasian women. Our pivotal trial was in Nebraska. We did not have very many non-Caucasian women. And osteoporosis affects people differently by race. Asians have very high rates of osteoporosis. There's a relatively high Asian population in San Francisco. So we're excited to be able to do research and we're very optimistic that it'll work equally well for them, but you kind of have to prove it, right? At what stage are you at with that? I mean, when do you expect to see results from that? So we are currently enrolling. We hope to finish enrolling by the end of the year, very early next year. And our trial is one year. So from the date the last patient enrolls, it's a year. Yeah, it's hard to wait. (laughs) And so in terms of having this uh, device on the market, when do you hope for that to be the case? So I'm sticking with my, you know, best case scenario here. (laughs) And there's a big variation in timelines with the FDA. So we are what's considered to be a breakthrough device. Breakthrough is a status granted by the FDA to devices that are meeting a high priority unmet need. And so in theory, that gives us faster turnaround times with the FDA. But in practice, I've been told by other startups that, you know, they're fairly backed up because of COVID and things like that. So this remains to be seen. Our FDA process could be anywhere from two to six or nine months I've been told to plan, you know, estimate around, you know, five or six. We'll see. And then as soon as we're approved, hopefully we'll be able to start shipping. And will that be available just to the public online? And It will require prescription, but we will probably have an online prescription distribution mechanism. We haven't worked out the details of that, but it could be something along the lines of you see your doctor. Um, the doctor writes, and this, when I say writes, it could be sort of an online prescription to our distributor who then, you know, ships the device to the patient. And how will you get the message out to physicians around the country? That's a good question. We are planning to kind of work at a few levels, one level of patients. So 
patients are really actively seeking a non-pharmacological treatment. And so we will market to them, you know, along the lines of this is available, ask your doctor. But it's, of course, very important that, you know, we educate and that the doctors are confident on this. And so we're not planning to hire a big sales force. The plan is more for, you know, one-to-many education. So that will take the form of most importantly, you know, publications. So leading with our data and hopefully getting that out in the best, most well-read by, you know, by these target doctors. And then in addition to that, you know, we'll present at the key meetings like the ASBMR, Endocrine Society, and then webinars and one-to-many marketing materials. So that's our initial plan. There are some partnerships we're looking into that, you know, will support our marketing efforts, but they're not at a stage for us to discuss them yet. I do believe that there's a lot of patient demand out there. We have a large number of patients on a waiting list. People who have signed up on our website, they've heard about us either through the trials or from the breakthrough device status. We haven't invested um, or had the budgets, frankly, for a lot of marketing. So I do think that there's strong interest out there. I have patients who will follow up with me saying, just want to make sure I'm still on your mailing list. Like that's very unusual for people to have that level of interest. And that means next we have a conversation with Immutep about the company and how the FDA has fast-tracked its non-small cell lung cancer candidate, FD. To tell us more is Immutep CEO, Mark Vogt. So, uh, so I guess the first question then to get things started, if you could give me a bit of background and tell me about the company, Immutep. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Immutep is a biotech company. We are active in immuno-oncology as well as in autoimmune diseases. And possibly the most important feature is that we are leading the LEX3 space, lymphocyte activation gene 3, which is one of the big and uh, validated immune checkpoints. You certainly know CTLA4, PD-1, immune checkpoints, which have revolutionized the way um, cancer patients are being treated today in many different indications. And... Uh, 2011 has been uh, LEX3, 2013-14 PD-1, and 21-22 is now uh, LEX3, 2011 CTLA-4, is now LEX3. So that's uh, validated. Immutep is the only LEX3 pure play. So everything we do is around LEX3. We have more programs than anyone else in the industry, including the big pharmaceutical industry, we have the worldwide leading scientist on board, Frederic Tribel, actually the person who discovered LEX3. And we have also a global footprint. So we are active in Australia. Sydney is our headquarter in Europe with subsidiaries in Germany and in France. We have also a legal entity in the United States. Another important feature is that we team up with a big pharmaceutical industry. Of course, that's the nature of the biotech uh, quite often, but I believe we have a number of uh, very good names we are collaborating with. Um, So we have, for instance, exclusive worldwide licensing agreements with Novartis and GlaxoSmithKline. We collaborate on clinical trial level for one of our products with uh, Merck US, Merck Germany, uh, Pfizer and others. And we are also um, in a collaboration with LabCorp um, regarding some diagnostic steps 
around leg three. We are publicly listed at the ASX uh, as well as at the NASDAQ. So could you give me some of the details on the FD and what it is, what it addresses, how it works? Sure. FD is our flagship, if you like. It's our elite program. It's positioned in immuno-oncology, and it is an APC activator. So it's addressing the dendritic cells and monocytes. FD is practically leg three itself, and it touches the other side of the leg three MHG class two interaction. So it's an MHG class two agonist. This is quite important because it's a unique way to activate the immune system. So we activate dendritic cells, monocytes, and then via the physiological way generate more CD4, CD8, and NK cells. We see also a Th1 response. So it goes maybe a bit broader than, for instance, anti-PD-1 therapies. How does it differ from or improve upon what's currently being used? Yeah, it's a unique program. We have the only MHG class 2 agonist in development. So the mode of action is differing um, quite a lot from the immune checkpoint inhibitors, for instance, anti-LEX3, anti-PD-1, anti-TIGIT, class of APC activators, TLR, CD40, uh, STING. And we typically combine FT with other established therapies like uh, anti-PD-1 therapies or chemotherapies, so we improve in a, um, I believe, a safe uh, manner, the outcome for different indications in oncology. And as far as the treatments, does it work alone or does it work better in conjunction with other treatments? So we have also monotherapy um, experience uh, with FD, but the reality uh, in oncology is that the combinations are the way to go. Obviously, there are many different clinical trials out there combining different approaches, and this is what we do as well. Um, we are doing that, for instance, with Ketruda from uh, US Merck or with um, Avilumab from Merck Germany and Pfizer with chemotherapy. Um, so we are searching for the right medical setting, unmet medical need, and try then in concert with existing other therapies to improve the outcomes for patients. And how is the drug administered? It's administered uh, subcutaneously, actually every two weeks. With the treatment, what actually happens to the cancer? Does it just slow down cancer or does it actually work towards getting rid of it? Yeah, so um, FD-Lagimod or FD is... Um, pushing the gas of the immune system. And importantly, we see um, in, in one of our clinical trials, for instance, where we measured it, a statistically significant increase of uh, CD8 um, T cells, um, the, the killer cells, if you like, doing the job of killing the tumor. And in our different clinical trials and in different indications, um, non-small cell lung cancer, head and neck cancer, metastatic breast cancer, we see complete responses. So where uh, we get rid of the tumor, but this, of course, in a minority of patients. The reality is that you typically um, see tumor shrinkage or stabilization of disease. Of course, also some patients are uh, progressing. Uh, there is not the one silver bullet against cancer, but that we are also in a position uh, to extend median overall survival, as we have been showing in the trial in metastatic breast cancer, that we uh, increase um, progression-free uh, survival so that 
in other words, we have better outcomes in the so-called uh, endpoints in the clinical trials, so traditional endpoints like tumor shrinkage, meaning overall response rate, median progression-free survival, so the time until the tumor grows again, and median overall survival. Um, and, and this is what we try to improve with uh, hopefully better quality of life for the patients. And this is something which we measured also in the trial in metastatic breast cancer, where FD has been combined with traditional chemotherapy and tested versus chemotherapy plus placebo. And we saw a significantly better quality of life for the patients taking FD. All right. I guess the most recent news was that the FDA has fast-tracked FD. What does the FDA fast-track mean for the company and I guess ultimately for patients? Indeed, regulatory designations such as Fast Track are very important for every biotech company because um, you uh, get it based on treating serious uh, conditions and fill a potentially unmet medical need. And the purpose from the FDA is uh, to get important new drugs to the patients earlier. So you need to show uh, superior effects and or avoiding uh, side effects, for instance. So it enables the company to have more frequent interactions. And if we continue to deliver in terms of data and file for BLA to have also a rolling review or to file um, subject to the conditions for accelerated approval. And actually, we have two fast-track designations for FD. One in first-line head and neck cancer we received in the last year. And then very recently, based on our results in first-line non-small cell lung cancer, the most important cancer indications in uh, immuno-oncology, based on the data we have been showing at ESCO, we received fast track there as well for patients uh, with a typical biological setup, meaning the TPS score. And uh, for patients, as mentioned, that could enable the drug to get to patients earlier. But of course, we need to deliver, we need to show more data and uh, get the relevant studies uh, uh, up and running. Right. And speaking of the studies, where are you at currently with FD? Yeah, we have a broad portfolio of different uh, clinical trials. And I think that's very important that the drug, the company is not exposed to uh, uh, binary events. So we have uh, an ongoing trial in first-line non-small cell lung cancer, Ketruda plus FD also um, under the umbrella, so to speak, of the same trial, uh, second-line non-small cell lung cancer and uh, second-line head and neck cancer. We have uh, a trial, um, a randomized trial in first-line head and neck cancer looking at Ketruda plus FD Lagimod versus Ketruda. So I think that's uh, quite exciting. We have another trial called INSIGHT 003, a trial looking at first-line non-small cell lung cancer, but with a combination of anti-PD-1 plus FD plus chemotherapy. We recently announced a new clinical trial, um, which is uh, funded by the Polish government in soft tissue sarcoma, a phase two, 40 patients looking actually at the neoadjuvant setting, including a radiotherapy. Um, and there are, of course, other trials we have been completing or uh, we are planning. Could you give me, a, obviously you've got lots of trials going on, but could you give me a rough timeline and some of the potential milestones for what happens next? Of course. And uh, indeed, we have a very busy fourth quarter this year. We announced that uh, we will uh, be at uh, SITC, a big conference, uh, mid of November in uh, Boston. Uh, and there we will present uh, INSIGHT 003 results for uh, the first time. 
And we also announced uh, that we have a late-breaking abstract coming. will be published uh, 2nd of November, if I'm not mistaken. But it's, of course, also very exciting. We have other news and updates in terms of uh, manufacturing, in terms of expansion of our pipeline, potentially also from our various different partners. And this is fourth quarter alone. And the next year, uh, more data, more trials, more updates. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover that we hadn't? Yeah, maybe regarding IMP761, our preclinical product, position autoimmune diseases. It's the world's first agonist to leg three. And we would like to finish GMP manufacturing, would like to conduct um, other uh, preclinical studies and be ready for clinical development um, sometime second half of uh, next year, hopefully. And now we're able to go over to the US for our weekly chat with Travis McReady at JLL. Glad to have you back, Travis. What have you got for us this week? Hi, Jim. Early in my career, I had the pleasure of working in philanthropy, leading grant-making and community investment for a billion-dollar foundation. The experience was eye-opening, introducing me to a whole new world of private capital, which is as underappreciated as it is crucial to the process bringing to market ideas and innovations that change the world. In the world of private capital, people obsess over venture capital and private equity, and rightly so. The sheer force created by the hundreds of billions of dollars deployed by VC and PE is impossible to ignore in the modern economy. When it comes to scientific advancements, while philanthropy doesn't put up the same numbers as VC and PE in the capital stack, its role is outsized in the way that it supports what may be the earliest, riskiest activities talent development, advancing basic research, encouraging innovation, and facilitating translation of research into products. In this regard, levels of private philanthropy are as much a proxy for life sciences vitality as traditional capital measures like VC or federal funding. Current philanthropy supports basic research in the United States with about $5 billion annually. When legacy philanthropic endowments spent by research institutions are taken into account, That number is about $25 billion a year, almost on par with the $29 billion annually spent by the federal government. All told, based on these estimates from the U.S. National Science Foundation, private philanthropy accounts for 42% of support for basic science at U.S. research institutions. By definition, this funding finds its way into the hands of nonprofit institutions, usually higher education, academic medical centers, and independent research institutions. Lest one question the output and, uh, and patient impact of these nonprofit institutions, one need only explore the role of the Broad Institute in Boston in mapping the human genome, being a co-leader in CRISPR technology development, or more recently, innovating diagnostics for the COVID-19 virus. Somewhat unsurprisingly, there's a correlation between the states that have an abundance of these types of institutions and the vibrancy of their life sciences ecosystems. Compare, for example, the six leading states with these institutions, California, Maryland, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, and Texas, against our recently released 2022 Life Sciences Outlook. What's exciting to see is that science philanthropy is actually experiencing a growth spurt, in part driven by the wealth of individuals in the new economy, a desire to address global persistent challenges such as infectious disease and cancer, 
and a greater understanding of the risks and rewards associated with funding science. The past month alone, two major announcements were made to propel the life sciences industry for years to come. The Bezos family pledged $710 million over 10 years to the world-renowned Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, the largest gift in the center's history for basic science to clinical research efforts. On the East Coast, Harvard University announced that Hans-Jörg Wies has pledged an additional $350 million to the eponymously named Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering, effectively doubling the size of this world-renowned resource responsible for innovations like organ-on-a-chip technology and organ 3D printing technology. The immediate effects alone of these investments are significant. Dozens of new researchers and scientists will be hired. New research facilities will be built. In the case of the Bezos Gift, a new 390,000-square-foot precision oncology institute. And lab infrastructure and technology will be acquired to facilitate the work. Long-term, the benefits of the life sciences ecosystem at large will be immense. Using history as a guide, dozens of new companies will spill out of these institutions based on the innovations developed, and ultimately, patients' lives will be vastly improved. Numerous studies have inextricably linked federal funding to commercialized technologies in the life sciences. No parallel study has ever been conducted properly establishing private philanthropy in the pantheon of key funding sources for scientific development. That said, as a colleague of mine is fond of saying, success leaves clues. And we are seeing the transformational scientific and economic effect that private philanthropy can have in life sciences environments across the United States. With that, Jim, back to you, and I look forward to being with you next week. Thanks a lot, Travis. Hopefully we will connect again next week, even though at this time next week I will be in Berlin after BioEurope ends. That's assuming I get the right train and don't end up in Latvia. Travis McReady is the leader of JLL's Life Science Markets Advisory Practice in the Americas, working closely with the global and scaling life sciences companies, developers and investors to achieve breakthroughs. He has more than 25 years of experience spearheading successful ventures related to technology and innovation, including as president and CEO of a $1.6 billion life sciences funding agency. And that's it for another week, as I have to get up before 3am in the morning, I'm going to go and pack, and I hope I remember everything. I really should have just left it all in the bag from the last time. I'm assuming there won't be a huge amount of traffic, at least, on the roads at 3am. So, if we are meeting in Bio-Europe, see you there, and I hope you have enjoyed this week's podcast, and that wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead, and will join us next time for another Beyond Biotech.